0: But today's topic, the prosperity gospel. You've heard it before, the word of faith movement, the positive confession theology, the name it and claim it gospel, the blab it and grab it gospel. It's preached by people like Osteen, Dollar, Hinn, Hagen, Jakes, Myers, White, Price, Prince, Copeland, Tilton, Hagee, Long, Crouch, Furtick, and the list goes on. And central to the prosperity gospel's message is this principle, this law, that's called the law of attraction. It's explained in a book called The Secret by Rhonda Burns. Burn, excuse me. This is the central principle of the entire entire prosperity gospel, this law of attraction. Here's what the book says. It defines it this way. Everything that's coming into your life, you are attracting into your life. And it's attracted to you by virtue of the images you're holding in your mind. It's what you're thinking, whatever is going on in your mind, you are attracting to you. That what's going through your head somehow attracts to you whatever it is you're thinking about. And so if you're thinking about wealth and prosperity, wealth and prosperity will just come to you. The reverse side of that is if you're thinking about something bad, you're going to attract that to you. Here are some quotes from this book, The Secret. Through this most powerful law, your thoughts become things in your life. Your thoughts become things. The only reason why people do not have what they want is because they are thinking more about what they don't want than what they do want. Here's another quote. When you become aware of this great law, then you become aware of how incredibly powerful you are to be able to think your life into existence. The secret goes on to say to use the law of attraction requires that you know what you want. You have to know what you want. You have to think about it. And then you have to believe it. And you have to believe it so much that you actually start feeling like you have it. And they actually have an interesting way of describing this in the book. Check this out. Start make-believing. Be like a child and make-believe. Act as if you have, you have it already as you make-believe. You will begin to believe you have received. Have faith your belief that you have it, that undying faith is your greatest power. And this is also in the prosperity gospel. You just need to have some faith. Faith, according to the prosperity gospel, is not the divine gift which enables you to trust in Christ for salvation. No, faith, according to the prosperity gospel, is a spiritual force. And you need to have some more of this spiritual force. Kenneth Copeland, who I really think is demon-possessed, but... Faith is a spiritual force, a spiritual energy, a spiritual power. It is this force of faith which makes the laws of the spirit world function. Completely unbiblical. That's from his book, The Laws of Prosperity. Faith is central. You have to have faith in order for you to get what you want. And faith here is all about you thinking and believing, not the promises of Christ, but thinking and believing that you are going to receive whatever it is you want. The secret, have faith. Your belief that you have it, that undying faith is your greatest power. When you believe you are receiving, get ready and watch the magic begin. Then you ask, well, how does it happen? How does this work? How does this come about? How am I going to receive this? The secret answers the question. How it will happen How the universe will bring it to you is not your concern or job. Allow the universe to do it for you. The how is not your part in the creative process. Anything about that last part bother you? The universe is doing it. Anything else bother you in this? Your part in the creative process. Just file that away because we're going to be back to that in a minute. That's not an accident. That's not accidental language. They actually do mean that. But does this sound familiar? This idea that if you just think about it, if you just have faith in it, you'll be able to receive it. Does it sound familiar to you? There's another way you may have heard this. This may be why some of you haven't heard it before. You haven't watched TBN lately. Because if you turn on TBN, this is what you'll hear. I want you to listen to this montage of Joel Osteen's sermon, Power Thoughts. Now, I, <laughs> I just heard the collective groan. <laughs> but it's a little montage I put together of his sermon, Power Thoughts. And I just want you to see if you can hear the law of attraction in what he's saying.
1: We wonder why we don't have any strength and why we can't get ahead. It's because our thoughts are limiting us. We draw in what we constantly think about. Victory starts in our mind. Success, breakthroughs, new levels depends on our thinking. Are you thinking power thoughts, victory thoughts, well able thoughts, or are you thinking defeated thoughts? I'll never get well, never accomplish my dreams, never break this addiction. You're choosing which direction your life is going to go. Pay attention to what you're dwelling on. Don't just think any thought that comes to mind. Instead of thinking those weak thoughts, drawing in more weakness, turn it around. I will defeat this sickness. I will rise out of lack and struggle. When you think like that, the creator of the universe goes to work. Miracles are set into motion. When God created you, he put in you everything you need to fulfill your destiny. Your thoughts are setting the limits for your life. I'm asking you, To pay attention to what you're thinking. You are drawing in what you're constantly dwelling on.
0: Your thoughts are running your life. Now, I didn't repeat any portion of that. His whole sermon follows that. If you just heard that one-minute montage, you heard the whole sermon. Because there's nothing different in the sermon. It's the same pattern over and over again. It's like Bethel music. It's just the same thing over and over again for 30 minutes. But did you hear it? Your thoughts are attracting to you whatever you're thinking about. That's the law of attraction. And that's a central tenet of the prosperity gospel. And my goal today is not to play endless clips of heretics out here spouting this. The reason I'm not going to do that is because you've already heard a lot of that. And if you go online and you look up good apologists like Justin Peters, you can hear all the stuff they're saying. I don't think that's what you need this morning. What I'd like to do is show you the the foundational roots. Where does this teaching come from? Because it certainly doesn't come from the Bible. And then once you see where it comes from, you'll understand why we call it a cult and really bad theology. The prosperity gospel is really built on two pillars. And the first pillar is built on is the personalities that teach it. And every person who teaches it they really inherit something from their mentor, they modify it, they expand it, and they pass it on. Kenneth Hagen taught Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland is now teaching Stephen Furtick, past one generation to the next. Aaron Phillips, in his doctoral thesis, said, "...an important observation to consider when tracing the origins and following the development of the doctrinal beliefs of the prosperity gospel is that it is personality-driven." The doctrinal derivatives were formulated by an individual personality then passed down to a mentor who picked up the original teachings of the predecessor and added to it personal interpretations, revelations, and perspectives. It doesn't come from a biblical source. It doesn't come from exegesis of Scripture. It's not Christian. It comes from the sinful mind of man. And the second pillar of the prosperity gospel is a philosophical system known as new thought. How many of you have heard of new thought? David Jones and Russell Woodbridge in their book Health, Wealth, and Happiness said this, the prosperity gospel is built upon a quasi-Christian heresy known as the new thought movement, an ideology that gained popularity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And just like the prosperity gospel, it's just taught from one mentor to the next. They go on. The prosperity gospel consists largely of the ideas of the New Thought movement, repackaged with new faces, new technology, new venues, and a slightly altered message. While the prosperity gospel may look better than the classic New Thought movement, it still constitutes a departure from Orthodox Christianity. It's repackaged. It's the same ideology from New Thought, just put in Christian lingo, Christianese. So what is New Thought? New thought is a philosophical system which began in the 19th century. It was known as mind cure or mental healing or harmonialism. There was one new thought group online that had a definition of what new thought is. They put their definition in their purpose statement. And I'm just going to show you their purpose statement so you can see it, and it'll define what new thought is. New thought. To promote interest in and the practice of a new of a true philosophy and a way of life and happiness to show that through right thinking, one's loftiest ideals may be brought into present realization and to advance, highest, advance intel, intelligent and systematic treatment of disease by spiritual and mental methods. Any of that sound familiar? <laughs> Seventh-day Adventist. Do you hear the prosperity gospel message in that? That through right thinking, your loftiest ideals may be brought into present manifestation. If you just think right, what you desire will be brought into reality. (laughs) We're going to talk about Christian science. And then notice the end of that. And to advance intelligent and systematic treatment of disease, how? By spiritual and mental methods. Using your mind to treat disease. And today I want to introduce you to some of the people who developed not only New Thought, but ultimately provided the philosophical foundations to give us the prosperity gospel. The earliest appearance of New Thought was a guy named Immanuel Swedenborg. The um, little logo under his picture is the Swedenborg Foundation. They are based out of Sweden. His name, Swedenborg, is actually a title given to his family by the king of Sweden. He was a scientist, a scientist and a prolific author who published works on several different scientific studies. And he wrote books on things like anatomy, the heart and blood, the nervous system. The Swedenborg Foundation's website explains why he was so interested in studying anatomy and the physical world. Here's what they said. Swedenborg was looking for a connection between the spiritual and the physical worlds. He thought that by studying the physical world that he could somehow learn about the spiritual world and that he would gain insight into the spiritual world. It was the spiritual world that was his real interest. And his search would find its culmination not in scientific studies but in his own personal experience, the Swedenborg Foundation. Although his theological writings are based on experiences and visions that may seem unbelievable to a modern audience, As they did to so many of Swedenborg's contemporaries, he writes with full awareness of how difficult his accounts may be to accept. In keeping with this early scholarly training, he presents his ideas in a logical order, drawing examples from everyday life as proof of the truth of his words, inviting readers to judge for themselves. And so it was his personal experiences that gave him this connection to the spirit realm. And you ask, well, what did he experience that would give him a connection to the spirit realm? Again, the Swedenborg Foundation. Ultimately, that struggle, that struggle of trying to find the spirit realm, was resolved when, as he described it, his spiritual senses were opened, and he began to interact directly with the denizens of heaven, hell, and the world of spirits in between. Now, rather than me trying to explain that, I'm just going to let the Swedenborg Foundation explain that. Some of these experiences were dreams. He would have a dream, and then he'd get up and he'd write in his diary. In one dream, a man appeared and asked him if he had a health certificate. Swedenborg interpreted this as Christ asking him if he were prepared to undertake a spiritual vocation. You see what happens when you believe in continuing revelation. You now start interpreting dreams. At other times, he experienced visions during the day, Jones and Woodbridge, in their book, Health, Wealth, and Happiness, describe it this way. In his work entitled Heavenly Secrets*, Swedenborg claimed for himself the title, the unique revealer of the Lord. In this capacity, he claimed to have dialogued with the Apostle Paul for one year, spoken several hundred times with the Reformer Martin Luther, and on at least one occasion had personal communication with Moses. Now, that book that they're describing there was supposed to be a discussion of the, quote, inner meanings of the Bible. Swedenborg did not believe in a literal translation of the Bible. He believed that the Bible had a deeper spiritual meaning. Best I can tell, this is something like census plenier. That the, the true meaning of the text is to deal with spiritual realities, not physical or material. He called it Correspondence that the physical descriptions of the Bible correspond to spiritual reality. The Swedenborg Foundation. Interspersed between the chapters of commentary are explanations of principles that would become key parts of Swedenborg's theology. The correspondence between the physical world and the spiritual world, the structure of heaven and hell, and the lives of angels and devils, the interaction between the soul and body, and the interconnectedness of faith and charity. Okay, well, how in the world did he have the ability to tell people about the structure of heaven and hell? How did he have the ability to tell people about the lives of angels and demons? He professed to be a clairvoyant who, over a period of 27 years, possessed the power to look into heaven, hell, and other dimensions of the spirit world. So not only did he say he was speaking to spirits and people who have passed, but now he has the ability to go to heaven and go to hell If you've watched TBN, they say the same stuff. But while he said he claimed he could go to heaven, while he said he claimed he spoke to the Apostle Paul, while he claimed to speak to Martin Luther, listen to what he believed. This is from Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Swedenborg held to a belief in God as a mystical force, the notion that the human mind has the capacity to control the physical world, and the teaching of a works-based self-salvation scheme, ideas that later became core doctrines of new thought. At the root of these teachings is the belief that the ultimate nature of reality is rooted in the non-physical, the spiritual, or simply in the mind. Do you really think he was talking to Moses or to the Apostle Paul with that kind of theology? And it is Emanuel Swedenborg who is the source and the fountain of new thought, Teaching, and that teaching, is what fuels and undergirds the prosperity gospel. Martin Larson, in his book, New Thought, said of Swedenborg, he is the ground fountainhead of a variety of deviationist religious movements, and specifically the grandfather of New Thought. Swedenborg would take his New Thought teachings, even though they may not have been called New Thought yet, and he would pass them on to someone else a guy named Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Quimby is known as the father of new thought. Swedenborg was the grandfather, Quimby is the father. And he's the one who really took new thought and he systematized it and made it kind of a coherent system, and then he expanded on it. Kate Bowler in her book, Blessed, said, Ralph Waldo Emerson's physical... Philosophical idealism, Swedish mystic Emanuel Swedenborg's Neoplatonic theory of correspondence, and Helena Blavatsky's theosophical quest for uniform spiritual laws seeded the ground, but it took Phineas Parkhurst Quimby, inventor and healer, to bring ideas about mind power to maturity. Mind power. That your mind has the ability and has the power to change reality, to change the world around you. Quimby argued that he had the ability to heal people of illnesses and diseases merely by thinking about it. If he just thinks real hard, he can cure you of your disease. For example, Quimby claimed that he could cause a person to stop walking simply by thinking or visualizing that situation. If I just think about it, I can change what's going on. He believed he could cure a disease. By thinking about it, because he said diseases ultimately were the result of bad thinking, not physical problems. It's all in your head. And if you simply change your thinking, you can resolve the disease. Here's Quimby. If I believe I am sick, I am sick. For my feelings are my sickness, and my sickness is my belief, and my belief is my mind. Therefore, all disease is in the mind or belief. Have you seen this today as well? I'm not sick. I won't profess that. I'm healed. Quimby said that this made him different from the science of medicine. Quimby, my practice is unlike all medical practice. I give no medicine and make no outward applications. I tell the patient his troubles and what he thinks is his disease. And my explanation is the cure. If I succeed in correcting his errors, I change the fluids of the system and establish the truth or health. The truth is the cure. Now, when you start asking questions about how in the world does this work, how can he do this, it gets a little bit more weird. How does he know what the patient's troubles are? How does he know what's wrong with the patient? Quimby, I found that I had the power of not only feeling their aches and pains, but the state of their mind. I could just sit next to them, and I know their aches and pains, and I know the state of their mind. John Huller, in his book, The History of New Thought, explains how Quimby felt their aches and pains. By absorbing the aura or vapor that surrounded patients' nervous systems, he was able to identify the troubles that had caused these conditions. And once he identified their problem, he next had to help them change their belief. Because that was their problem. They were thinking wrong. Quimby. The love for health prompts you to come. My love for you prompts me to lead you to health. This I do by teaching you the errors of your belief and showing you where you have been deceived. See, all I have to do is change the way you think, and then I can help you get rid of your disease because your problem is not that you have a disease. Your problem is that you have bad thinking. Now, yes, yes. Good question. Why why do faith healers wear glasses and casts when they break a bone? By changing someone's belief, you can change their disease. Now, here's the problem. When someone with cancer comes and you tell them, I can cure you because your problem is that you're thinking wrong, what did you just do to them? You just blame them for the cancer. It's their fault that they have cancer. But teaching was not the primary means by which... Quimby was going to change their mind. This is the roots. This is the foundation of the prosperity gospel. And there are people who believe that this comes from the Bible. But it comes from Swedenborg. And if you just remove the Bible verses, it just sounds completely ridiculous. We're going to get there. He was asking, do they try to say this is biblical? Quimby would eventually try to say this was biblical. And the prosperity teachers try to say this is biblical. But like I said, teaching was not his primary means of changing people's mind. How did he change people's minds? Uh, John again. while oral instruction constituted a critical element in the healer's work, according to Quimby, it was not the most important component. As many cures were Accomplished with little or no oral communication. The healer simply held in his mind an image of what the patient should be. And this image, through thought transference, was impressed upon the patient's mind. The change was accomplished by the two wills working in harmony. Notice all he has to do is just hold the image in his mind. And merely by thinking about it, he has the power to change their physical condition. Quimby then began reading the Gospels, and he began reading the Bible. This goes to your question, Scott. And he started trying to connect his teachings to that of Jesus. John Holler again. Quimby turned his psychotherapeutic method toward religion, declaring that its truths were consistent with the teachings of Jesus and the healings he and his apostles performed during the early years of the Christian church. Quimby concluded that Jesus' true mission had been to treat the sick. And so now he takes this new thought teaching that he inherited from Swedenborg, and he goes into the Bible and he starts trying to connect it to what Jesus said. And his teaching, he claimed, was consistent with the healings that Jesus and the apostles did. And it's not just that he thought he could heal people with his mind. Quimby went a little bit further. He said that your thoughts and your beliefs determined your happiness and your joy. John Hollergan, convinced that a person's happiness or misery depended upon his or her beliefs, believing that God neither intentionally inflicted disease upon his creatures nor intended that human beings should suffer from it, Quimby thought it possible to discover the opinions, fears, and mental pictures that sowed the seeds of error and to change them. You've heard that teaching that says it's not God's will for you to be sick. It's not God's will for you to have any disease. This is where it comes from. It comes from Quimby. The only reason, according to Quimby, that you get sick is because you have wrong thinking. And what you need to do is you need to change your thinking so you won't be sick anymore. And one of the more shocking ideas expressed by Quimby... He said that Jesus never performed a miraculous healing. I can produce a phenomenon that is just like some produced by Christ. I should like to know by what authority anyone dares to say that it is not done in the same way that Christ did his works. He's saying that Jesus didn't heal through divine power. When Jesus healed people, he did it through mental curing that Jesus merely changed the way people think, and that cured the disease. Therefore, Jesus was not using divine power. Jesus healed the same way that Quimby healed, and therefore, you have the ability to heal just like Jesus. John Huller. The Bible contained a level of wisdom that Quimby called the Christ, and this was Jesus' gift to the world, a mental healing method all could practice. In teaching this Christ science, Jesus showed humankind how to draw upon the divine wisdom within to overcome false beliefs. Jesus here is not God. He's a man in whom divine wisdom resided. And this same divine wisdom, according to Quimby, resides in every person. And if you just use that divine wisdom, like Quimby, you can change the minds and cure the illnesses of other people just by thinking about it. Jones and Woodbridge said this, Quimby also argued that Jesus was just another man who had superior ideas. In order to cure people, he simply changed their minds with his teachings. The same method Quimby himself practiced. After all, the problem was the sick person's thinking patterns. You don't need God to cure you. And you don't need to be God to cure someone else. You have enough divine wisdom and divine power in you that you can just think and change other people's physical condition. And keep in mind, when Quimby refers to Christ, the title Christ, he's not speaking about the person of Jesus. John Haller explains, The term Christ was never intended to apply to the man Jesus, but to a truth superior to the natural man. Once Jesus was baptized, however, God took on the attributes of flesh and blood to convince man of his power and save man from an endless eternity of misery. For Quimby, this meant that the Christ or God in us is the same that is in Jesus, only in a greater degree in him. You have the same divine power and wisdom that Jesus had. He just had it in a greater degree than you. And today, this is still taught. There's a doctrine in the prosperity gospel called the little God's doctrine, that you are a little God. From the aptly named Creflo Dollar.
2: So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, created he him. Male and female, created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. Uh And if God now produces man and everything produces after its own kind, if horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this, but I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God, and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God.
0: You are gods. That's still taught today. People still believe that today. It came from Quimby and New Thought teaching. This is a central tenet of New Thought. It's a central tenet of the prosperity gospel. It's the only way the law of attraction could possibly ever work. But when he uses the term God, you need to understand most of these prosperity preachers have a false view of God. T.D. Jakes is a modalist. Stephen Furtick is probably a modalist. Benny Hinn has spouted some of the worst Trinitarian heresies you will ever hear. They all have an unorthodox view of God. God, in this new thought teaching, is not a personal being, but a spiritual force. And you are, in some sense, divine because that force is in you. New thought beliefs include that God is a force. Spirit or mind is the ultimate reality. People are divine. Disease originates in the mind, and thoughts can create and or change reality. Reality. You are divine, and therefore, your thoughts can change reality, and that you can actually alter your existence merely by thinking about it. Quimby would take these teachings and pass them on to his students. Some of them were his patients, including one that you've already heard about, Mary Eddie Baker, who later founded Christian Science. The book, Blessed, as Eddie taught, Jesus came to save the world, not through his divinity, but by demonstrating right thinking. Where did Mary Eddie Baker get the foundations of her teaching? She got it from Phineas Parker's Quimby. The book, The History of New Thought, John Holler. A comparison of Quimby's ideas with Eddie's, however, will show that without Quimby, Eddie would have had very little upon which to base her own system. All that is is just repackage New Thought just like the prosperity gospel. It's just repackaged. New thought was then taken and popularized in the early 20th century. It was popularized by books. And the power of the mind to cure and to heal and to change reality was then applied to economics and the ability to use your mind and use your thinking to make you rich. Books like Creative Mind and Success by Ernest Holmes the Science of Getting Rich by Wallace D. Wattles, or a really popular one, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. All of these are founded on new thought teaching, that by merely believing, thinking, and speaking, you can change reality. I forgot who this is by, but this is a quote. In these new thought works, one can discern some of the key recurring elements of the prosperity gospel. Speaking the right words, invoking a universal law of success with words, and having faith in oneself. These books are just repackaged new thought. And in the 20th century, three ideas become the foundation of new thought teaching. Three primary ideas. These come out of the book uh, Blessed. The first one is a high anthropology Christian teaching says that man is separated from God by his sin, and because of his sin, he is inherently sinful and evil. And he has no hope in himself, and there's nothing he can do for himself. All of his hope is in God. But New Thought teaches the exact opposite. Kate Bullard described New Thought teaching during the 20th century. And she said, New Thought assumed essential unity between God and humanity, declaring that separation from the divine was only a matter of degree. The American religious terrain plowed deep by the soulful individualism of Ralph Waldo Emerson was a fertile soil for a high anthropology, which is to say an optimistic theology of human capacity. New Thought now changes man from being a depraved sinner who's utterly dependent upon God to being someone who has divine nature in himself, and really what he needs to do is fulfill his greatest potential. And since you have this wonderful potential inside of yourself, since you are partly divine, salvation is no longer a matter of being saved from the consequences of sin by the work of Christ. New thought, she says, explored salvation not as an act imposed from above by God, but rather an act of drawing out humanity's potential. Now, salvation is all about your present life right now. Reaching your fullest potential, which means you're not going to have sickness or disease, you're not going to have poverty of any kind, you're going to be free of all of that. Tell me that doesn't sound like Joel Osteen. The second pillar, or the second foundation of 20th century new thought, is that the material is contingent upon the spiritual. Christian science ultimately denied the physical realm. It said nothing is real, there's nothing physically real. New thought doesn't deny the physical, but it says that the physical is contingent upon the mind. That your mind can alter and change reality. And that leads to the third aspect of new thought. You can change the material world with your mind. And you can do that because you are divine. And you can change reality by merely thinking about it. Now, I have another video. This is not a a heretic. This is a guy you'll like. I have a video from John MacArthur. He's going to talk a little bit about the book, The Secret, and then he's going to help you understand how this all connects back to
3: Quimby. In the book, there is something called the law of attraction. You attract a certain kind of reality to yourself, your thoughts. And your words attract this reality, literally create this reality. The sequence goes like this, know what you want, two, believe you will get it, three, visualize the fulfillment of it and four, speak it out loud and you will bring it into existence. You want money? Then know you want it, believe you will get it. Visualize the getting of it. In other words, go through the emotions you would feel if you had it and then speak it and it will happen. You have enough divine power. You have enough of God in you to create your world. Your life is the reality that you create by attracting it. Your thoughts and words then have this divine creative power. What you think What you believe, what you visualize and what you speak becomes the reality that you live. And if you like the way your life is, then keep speaking the same thing, thinking the same thing, visualizing the same thing, believing the same thing. But if you don't like the way your life is, change what you want, believe you'll get it, visualize the receiving of it and speak it out loud. You will cause the universe literally to rearrange itself to make it happen for you by the law of attraction. Start feeling what you would feel when your reality arrives and speak it. You have the power, quote, you have the energy of the universe to create your world. You are the designer of your destiny. The roots of this nonsense are in bizarre people like an 1860 writer by the name of Phineas Quimby, it's been passed down, it's a form of... Deception, illusion, and kind of pantheistic sharing of the divine nature, which is a pagan concept.
0: All of this came from who? Quimby. The prosperity gospel ultimately asserts not necessarily that God is a genie in a lamp, and if you just rub the lamp, He'll give you what you want. Ultimately, the prosperity gospel asserts that you are divine and that you can create a new reality you share in divine power. Uh, Kate Bullergan, New Thought, argued that people shared in God's power to create by means of thought. People shaped their own worlds by thinking just as God had created the world using thought. You can create just like God created. This is still taught today that you can create like God created. And in fact, that is exactly what Creflo Dollar uses in his sermon and I have this in two parts just so we can build this, he's talking about, he actually takes Romans, the book of Romans, and he twists it into the prosperity gospel, which is atrocious. But he says, what fills your heart will fill your mouth. And you need to first get these ideas to fill your heart so that way you can confess and profess the right things. Here's his description of it. Whatever your heart is full of will eventually spill over into your mouth.
2: Whatever your heart is full of will eventually get in your mouth. The word is not the even in your mouth, and it is even in your heart. It's in your mouth because whatever you're full of in your heart is getting in your mouth. So your mouth, your confession, and your believing, they're connected. Your confession and your believing,
0: it's connected. Now, when he says the word, he doesn't actually mean the Bible. He's using the Bible, but the word is not what the Bible says. The word is what you want. And he says, you need to confess what you're believing. So that way it'll come to pass. Now, what is the biblical evidence he uses to prove that it'll come to pass?
2: Y'all hear what I'm saying? Uh, you remember in Genesis chapter uh, 1, Genesis chapter 1, to, uh, verse 2, the Bible says darkness was on the face of the water. And then, and then verse 3 said, and God said, let there be light. And he said, and, and there was light. See, God saw darkness, but he said what? God didn't say what he saw. He saw darkness, but he said what? And then there was what? But when was there light? But even though there was darkness, he said, and there was what? Even though there was darkness, he said, and there was what? Even though your wallet is empty, You don't say empty. You say. And then you'll have what? Even though your marriage look crazy right now, you don't say
0: crazy. You don't say because. God didn't say what he saw. And you need to be like God. You need to say what you want to have happen. You are to act like God. By the way, you notice how he keeps having the audience repeat something? That's actually a form of manipulation. It, gets, it lulls you into following what he says and doing what he says. And his whole again, I had to listen to the whole sermon. the whole sermon, he was doing that repeatedly. I almost wanted to turn it off just because he kept say this with me, and then he'd have him repeat it 10, 15 times. Yeah, good point. There's, there's a whole lot of logical inconsistencies in this, and if you're trying to make this make sense logically, it's, it's going to fall apart on you. But you notice, you are supposed to be like God. You're supposed to do what God does. This doesn't come from the Bible. This comes from new thought, and it comes from Quimby. And it's exactly what the prosperity gospel tells you today. New thought would then morph again, under the influence of a guy named Essek William Kenyon. And more than any other, Kenyon is the man who is most directly responsible for the prosperity gospel in America today. And by the way, I, I saw the numbers. America exports this garbage. And if you look at the numbers, Pew did a poll in 2006. And if you go to the poorest countries in the world, like in Africa, Nigeria, I've got some of the other nations in there but it's like 90% or more of those populations believe the prosperity gospel. Why? Because they are poor and desperate. And these charlatans go out there and sell this stuff and convince people to give them money based off this bad theology. Essek Kenyon is the guy who took new thought and turned it into the prosperity gospel, Dale, Dale Simmons. Kenyon is the primary source of the health and wealth gospel of the independent charismatic movement. Kenyon openly rejected new thought teaching. He said he was opposed to it, but when you read his writings, he clearly embraced it. He is the one who is known as the first one to introduce the idea of confession. We just heard Creflo Dollar talk about how you need to confess. That came from Kenyon. He was the one they believe coined the phrase, what I confess, I possess. Kenyon said this, Confession always goes ahead of healing. Don't watch symptoms. Watch the Lord and be sure that your confession is bold and vigorous. Don't listen to people. Act on the word. Be a doer of the word. It is God speaking. You are healed. The word says you are. Don't listen to the senses. Give the word its place. God cannot lie. Where is that in the Bible? Where it says you will be healed? Jones and Woodbridge. According to Kenyon, then, with proper thoughts and one spirit, one can command the physical world including the physical body. This idea that thoughts and words have power is the staple of the prosperity gospel. This is the same idea that Joel Osteen taught in his book, Your Best Life Now. In that book, he talks about the power of confession. He says, friend, there is a miracle in your mouth. If you want to change your world, start by changing your words. You just speak it like God did. Just say what you want to have happen. And you have so much power that merely by speaking, you can change the world. And he says you ought to start with yourself. Get up in the morning and start speaking to yourself and speaking good things into your life. Get up each morning and look in the mirror and say, I am valuable. I am loved. God has a great plan for my life. I have favor wherever I go. God's blessings are chasing me down and overtaking me. Everything I touch prospers and succeeds. I am excited about my future. Start speaking those kinds of words, and before long, you will rise to a new level of well-being, success, and victory. There truly is power in your words. This is the law of attraction. This is the new thought idea just repackaged with biblical terminology to make it sound Christian. Ossing says that through your words, you will create a new world to live in. And here he's going to twist some scripture. Scripture says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and you will eat the fruit thereof. In other words, you can create an environment for either good or evil with your words, and you are going to have to live in that world you've created. Now, he's quoting Proverbs 18.21. And he's using it to say you should speak more of what you want. But Proverbs 18.21 is encouraging you to be restrained in expressing your opinion. Not telling you that you have power to change the world by speaking it. Just how powerful are your words according to Osteen? They're so powerful that you should use your words to command what you want, but you should not pray to God about your problems. Here's Osteen. Start calling yourself healed, happy, whole, blessed, and prosperous. Stop talking to God about how big your problems are and start talking to your mountains about how how big your God is. Your big God doesn't want you to talk to him about the problem. He wants you to go out there and command your problem to be gone and to speak whatever it is that you want. And by using your inner divine power, your success and your failure is not up to God. It's up to you. Hosting. God has already done everything he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and over your family. God's done everything he's going to do. You don't need to worry about speaking to God about this. Notice this is a form of deism when he says that. When he says God has done everything he's going to do, God is not in charge of providence anymore, God is no longer sovereign, he's not controlling your life, you are now in the driver's seat, not God. And he determine, you determine what you will receive and what you will not receive. Osteen should probably go back and read Deuteronomy 8.18. But you shall remember that Yahweh your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. That he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Even in the Old Testament, they knew that God was the one who gave wealth and prosperity, not us. Or consider Job, when Job lost all of his possessions and his family. Did Job turn around and say, wow, I, I just need to confess better? Job 1, verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Can you imagine if Joel Osteen lost all of his wealth, that he would turn around and say this? Or any of the prosperity preachers. Because their theology says, it's not God's will for this to happen to you. You shouldn't have this Problem. Prosperity, health, and wealth are given by God according to his loving kindness and to his wisdom. Even enjoying the fruit of your own labor, you go to work and you work really hard and you, you earn a paycheck, even enjoying the fruit of that is a gift from God. Ecclesiastes two twenty four. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and have his soul see good in his labor. This also I have I have seen that it is from the hand of God. Osteen's teaching is not biblical. It comes from Kenyon and the New Thought teaching that says that you have the divine power within you to create through thoughts and words. Even the teaching that you shouldn't pray comes from Kenyon. Kenyon, the believer does not need to ask the Father to heal him when he is sick, because surely he hath borne our sickness and carried our diseases, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. God laid our diseases on Jesus. Don't pray about your problems. Don't pray when you're sick. Is that what the Bible says, that when you're sick, you shouldn't pray? I'm, I'm just thinking like James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must what? Or verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they will do what? Pray. Not according to Kenyon. Kenyon says, no, no, you don't need to pray about it. You just need to confess. You just need to proclaim, declare it, that you are healed. Kenyon tried to support his teaching with biblical arguments and say, the reason we can command the material world through our confession is because health, healing, and wealth are part of the atonement of Christ. Here's Kenyon. Isaiah 53.10 states that it pleased Jehovah to make him sick with our sicknesses so that by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53.10 is talking about sin, not physical sickness. If we are healed, then we do not need to pray for our healing. All we need to do is rebuke the enemy in Jesus' name, order him to leave our bodies, and thank the Father for perfect healing. It is all so simple. You've heard people say, I rebuke this illness, I rebuke the devil. That comes from Kenyan. It's nowhere taught in Scripture. And notice, you don't pray to God. You order the enemy to leave because apparently you have power over demons. You order the illness to depart. And then once you have ordered all this and things have changed because of your order, then you turn around and thank the Father. Kenyon focused on healing because he said that it's not God's will for anyone to be sick. God never planned that we should live in poverty, physical, mental, or spiritual. He made Israel go to the head of the nations financially. When we go into partnership with him and we learn his ways of doing business, we cannot be failures. You cannot be a failure for his wisdom is your wisdom. His ability in every department of life is your ability. All you need to do is study the word of God and get the knowledge that is imparted to you there. Then he will give you the ability to make your life a success. And being successful in life is the whole goal of Kenyan system. The whole goal, according to Kenyan, of the Bible and of salvation is for you, as Ossian said, is to, for you to live your best life now. He spoke of it in terms as an investment. The value of an, of an investment is its dividends. The value of Christianity is what we get out of it. We are Christians for what we can get in this life. And we claim a hope of the world to come where pain and sorrow cannot claim us as victims and death cannot cut short our joys. We also demand that the God we serve and worship shall hear our petitions, protect us in danger, and comfort us in our sorrow. Christianity is all about what I can get in this life. My best life today And notice at the end, we also demand that God. You want to know where that comes from, where people start ordering around God? It comes from Kenyon and this idea that they are divine. In his view, salvation is all about your best life right now, success in the world today. And you might say, well, what about sin? What about salvation from hell and the consequences of sin? Kenyon again, I'm speeding up for time. Sin basically is a spiritual thing, so it must be dealt with in the spirit realm. If Jesus paid the penalty of sin on the cross, then sin is but a physical act. If his death paid it, then every man could die for himself. He just denied the full deity of Christ there. Sin is in the spirit realm. The physical death was but a means to an end. When Jesus died, his spirit was taken by the adversary and carried to the place where the sinner's spirit goes when he dies. What he's saying there is the death of Christ on the cross didn't save anyone. It didn't actually atone for sin. Why? Because they prioritized the spirit over the physical. And so his physical death could not have been salvific. And it was when he was taken to hell, which I think is completely wrong. Now do you see why we say it's a cult? Do you hear new thought teaching in this? More importantly, do you see the source of the prosperity gospel? From Swedenborg, prosperity preachers get the emphasis on the spiritual or the mental affecting the material. From Quimby, that doctrine evolves into being a God who can create the universe as you desire, and you can think and change the things around you. And from Kenyon, the need to confess and speak out loud that Jesus came only to give you success and happiness in this life, and he does not desire you to be sick, and you can change it by merely speaking it. That's the prosperity gospel. It comes from new thought teachers. And today, charlatans like Joel Osing twist scriptures to defend this teaching. But the truth is, they stand on the shoulders of Swedenborg, Quimby, and Kenyon, not the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus. Ultimately, the prosperity gospel rests on the shoulders of new thought teachers. And they just borrow language from scripture. This is my last slide. New thought drew not only from the Gospels, but also from Hinduism, philosophical idealism, transcendentalism, popular science evolution, and the optimistic spirit of progress. New thought was a combination of pagan philosophies, and so is the the prosperity gospel preached today. All right, I'm out of time. If you have questions, come and see me afterwards. Let me pray. We'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We do thank you that um, you have given us the ability through your word and through your spirit, to discern the truth. You've given us your word. We know the truth, and we can spot these false teachings. We thank you that we've had the opportunity over the last 12 weeks to consider uh, this bad theology, and we ask that you would use it to help equip us to engage and to defend the faith, to preach the gospel to those who believe this, and that it would uh, urge us, out of compassion for those who are caught in this, to pray for those souls who believe these, um, these lies.